Welcome to this series of Warriors Unite podcast with me, your host, Carla. Here I've created a platform for people with dysautonomias, chronic illness, and invisible illness, where we can all come together to advocate, educate, and of course, make awareness to all these conditions. I myself, 17 years ago, was diagnosed with a chronic illness called POTS, so I do know how important it is that we get all this information out. So I do hope you can come along and join in as us warriors unite. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Warriors Unite podcast with me, your host, Carolyn. This week's guest joining us all the way from the other side of the world is the very beautiful Yvonne. Yvonne, how are you? Hi, how are you? <laughs> welcome. What time in the evening is it there? Adelaide, is it? Is that where you are? It is, yeah. Um, it's 10 past five in the evening. So our day is almost over. Yeah, it's 20 to 9. 20 to 9 here now, and the sun is just coming out. So it's good for that. So um, I'll let it over to you. So Yvonne, and you can tell the people that are listening all about you, your condition, and how you manoeuvre your way on a daily basis. All right, lovely. Thank you so much, and thank you for asking me to do this. So hi, everybody. My name's Yvonne Cowan. Um, you can probably hear I'm Irish um, I'm currently living in Adelaide um, with my husband and our two daughters, Kira 13 and Sorcha, who's 11. Um, and when I was asked to do this, I wasn't quite sure of how in-depth I was going to go because this is my first time actually sharing this. Um, so I'm a little bit nervous, so <laughs> apologies if there's a lot of umming and um, ahhing. Um, but when I actually went through my story, I realized that there was a lot of connections. And as we all say, hindsight's a great thing. But I thought that I would walk you through um, from start, um, not everything, but, but things that I noticed looking back now. Um, which, you know, had I known what I know now would have made a huge difference to my health. So I'll start and I'll, I'll just let you know that I suffer with chronic migraines. I have done nearly all my life. Um, I suffer with severe IBS, EDS, fibromyalgia, um, and I've just picked up two new ones, which is um, rheumatoid arthritis and um, CPRS, which is CRIPS. Um, it's a complex pain, regional pain syndrome. Um, and I'll go through um, shortly how I picked those up. Um, um, everything, nothing is fully officially diagnosed apart from the last two. Um, so as a child, I was actually incredibly clumsy. I was always falling over, banging into things, completely accident prone. Actually, my parents would always refer to me as the accident prone one. Um, I was always covered in bruises. And um, the ER was uh, a second home to me. I suffered from fractured knees, burst gum, stitches, broken toes, wrists, migraines. I was always like the ER was a second home. So um, I suppose the first time that things started to kick off was when I was nine and um, I had my first day in hospital. I was rushed to hospital with threatened appendix. And um, I was so terrified being in hospital 
um, that I said the pain was going away and um, they were going to operate on me that night and I told them that the pain was going away so they decided to monitor me throughout the night and thank god the pain had left not left but had reduced drastically by morning time so they kept me in for another two days and then they let me go but the day they let me go I took a migraine I started taking a migraine and within a matter of hours I was throwing up violently throwing up and my mum, who suffered from migraines as well, just thought it was a really bad migraine. So I slept on and off most of Sunday. So it was a Saturday I was released from hospital. I'll never forget this. Um, spent most of Saturday night thrown up. Sunday, I was in and out of sleep all day. Mum went to work on Monday and dad was at home with me. And when he went to pick mum up in the evening, uh, she asked how I was and dad said well actually she hasn't woke up at all today she wouldn't eat anything and so panic alarm bells going off so they raced me to hospital and um, I had a lumbar puncture done when I got up to the hospital um, and for those of you who don't know what lumbar puncture is it's a, a thick needle into the spine to take fluid out to basically find out what's going on um, and it's a great way to diagnose meningitis so meningitis was diagnosed and I was in hospital for um, just a few days you'll be surprised to hear um, so it was a viral meningitis that I had um, so you were basically patted on the back and told well there's not much we can do about it so just take a few panadol and you'll be fine um, but a scary thing happened to me while I was in hospital. So the night that I had the lumbar puncture done, I was like, I was nine. I was riddling around quite a bit on the bed and there was five of them pinning me down. Um, now, I don't know whether the fact that I hadn't stayed still for the uh, lumbar puncture um, had an effect on me, but I woke up in the middle of the night and I was absolutely paralyzed nothing I couldn't blink I couldn't do anything and as a nine-year-old lying in bed nothing was moving like I couldn't press the buzzer to get the nurse I couldn't cry out there was nothing happening and I remember the tears falling down God, I'm getting emotional talking about this but it was it was a frightening experience and um uh I must have cried myself to sleep because the next morning I woke up and I didn't say anything to the doctors because they were all a very, uh, you know, sort of threatening presence around my bed in the morning. And when my mum and dad came in later that day, I said, this is what happened. And my mum got the doctor straight away and they couldn't figure out. And they said, oh, just one of those things. And they didn't know what had happened and they couldn't explain it. But um, I have always had a numb area across the center of my back where the lumbar puncture went in mm -hmm. from that. And from there, my migraines kicked in big style. I, for six months, I remember as a nine-year-old child walking around with my hands on my head mm -hmm. because the pressure of me walking, the vibration of me walking was so bad. Um, and there was nothing that they could do. So I sort of learned to live with migraines from a very young age. And I also realized that, you know, if I was to give in to the migraine, then I was going to be bed bound for <laughs> a long time. So you just got on with it. So, you know, to this day, when you tell people you've got a migraine and you're getting on with things, they're like, no, it can't be a serious migraine. <laughs> Otherwise you'd be in bed, right? Um, 
So that's my story of how I started the migraines. But later that same year, I ended up in hospital um, and I ended up with an emergency appendix operation. So they were whisked out quite quickly. Um, and I think that, that the meningitis probably triggered the appendix. Um, mm. But um, I, I'm going to share this little bit with you because I think that there's a bit of a theme going with me. So my stitches went septic um, and I ended up having an, an extra few days in hospital with fever and all the rest and um, until it got sorted. Um, I remember having my tonsils and adenoids done maybe two years after that, so I would have been about 11, but they also washed down my sinuses in the bid to help me try and shift the migraines that I was suffering, um, but I didn't find any relief from that at all. Um, when my periods came, I was probably quite late starting periods. I must have been nearly 14 when my period started and they were a nightmare because I used to bleed really, really heavily for about 10 to 14 days. And then I would get a five day break and it would all kick off again. And the cramps in my stomach, like knowing what I know now, I probably have had endo um, but my mum also suffered really badly and she had a full hysterectomy done at 45 um, because of her periods as well um, and you know when I'd speak to her about it she'd say oh, Yvonne you know that's just our makeup you know that's what we're like and you know I suffer this way too um, and I suppose I, I should have started with saying I'm actually 52 um, and treatment would be a hell of a lot different nowadays than it was back then. You know, there wasn't really anybody that you could go to and say these things were happening and you, they wouldn't have known what to do with you. Um, so I left home when I was 20. I went to live in London. And one of the first things I did when I moved to London was I went to a doctor and got on the pill, um, which wasn't available to me in Ireland. Um, and the reason I went on the pill was to regulate my periods. And yes, it regulated my periods, but it certainly didn't stop the pain that I was in every month. Um, so I'll take you back to um, when I was 13, because this is where my IBS kicked in. So I, I wasn't even aware I had IBS. Um, I didn't have a problem with food. I didn't have a problem with anything, but I remember waking up one night and I was in agony. Um, just the severest cramping pains in my stomach, but like massive spasming going on. Like there was, it was like there was an alien in my stomach, but the pain was so severe. It had gone into my back and up my back. I couldn't stand, I couldn't sit, I couldn't lie. I was in agony. And I went into the bed bedroom to get my mom awake. And my he, I took a few minutes to get mom awake. I go, mom, mom, I'm in agony like this. And the whole effort of trying to wake her up, I couldn't even breathe by the time she got out of bed. And my dad got panicked and he was like, oh, my God, she's having a heart attack. She's 13. So he's like rushing to get his clothes on to get me up to casualty. And um, I felt so sick. I thought I was either going to pass out or throw up all over the place. And my mum said to me, because she suffered really bad with IBS. She said, Yvonne, just sit in the toilet, sit in the toilet. Mm -hmm. And she brought me a basin and it literally, I threw up. And um, if you've got a squeamish stomach, turn away now. But it was literally hot brown water coming mm -hmm. out of me. And there was about four episodes of that over the course of an hour. And then 
back to normal, like as if nothing had happened other than I was left completely fatigued from the whole um, experience and completely overwhelmed, like it really rocked my boat, what, what had just happened. Um, so I started to realize that there was um, a bit of connection from that, from that episode onwards, every time I ate, um, I didn't know whether it was going to settle or whether I was going to be running from the, for the toilet. Um, so I became nervous of eating um, and I wasn't quite sure of what the triggers were because I could eat something today and it wouldn't upset me and tomorrow I could eat it and it really would upset, upset my stomach. Um, and I remember a dietitian saying to me, um, later on in life she she explained to me what happened she said for people who have gut issues our bucket is always nearly full and so you could eat something today and it's not going to tip it but tomorrow because you've eaten something and you've eaten something you've eaten something it could be the something that you've eaten that that is okay for you that will trigger it and tip the bucket um so so that's why it's really hard when you've got gut issues to identify what is your trigger um and i'll go on to how i found out what my triggers were later um Another thing that I have, since I've reached out to um, the hidden illness community, I'm shaking like a leaf talking. <laughs> you can hear it in my voice. But um, I um, had, um, when I moved to London, I suffered from, and this is not something that had happened to me before, but I suffered from hyperhidrosis. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's basically severe sweating of your hands, your armpits or your feet. Um, and I had it in my hands and my feet. And there was, I remember reading in the paper that there was this surgeon in King's College Hospital in London, and he was performing keyhole surgery and he could sort it all out and all the rest. So I went to see him. I thought, oh my God, because I was like in my early 20s, it was embarrassing to have sweaty hands. Like I could literally, even if my hand was cold, I could make a fist like this and the water would just drip out of my hands. It was it's so embarrassing. But anyway, so he um, said, I can sort you, Yvonne, no problem. But he said, normally people have sweaty hands and sweaty armpits. So we go in on one side and he said, then we'll bring you back and go on the other side. But we have a plan for you, Yvonne, because you only have sweaty hands. Let's do both sides at the same time. So I was the first person that they operated on both sides. Now, what they do with hyperhidrosis is, um, it was like two little keyhole incisions under my arm. They go in, they deflate the lung, burn the nerve endings, come out, inflate the lung, I know, and uh, <laughs> do the same on the other side. So needless to say, when I woke up, I was struggling to catch my breath, right? Because they had deflated both lungs and they got a bit panicked and thought that I was having a heart attack, um, but clearly not. Um, but it was enough to scare them for them to say, you know what, we don't think you're an ideal candidate to come back in and have your feet done. Um, so let's just leave it as it is. But the hyperhidrosis, the reason I mention it is because I've noticed that there's quite a few other people who suffer, who have EDS and suffer with hyperhidrosis as well. Um, so if you have sweaty hands, um, know that it is a thing, you know, and 
And what I was told at the time is that it comes from some sort of a trauma in your life. And the consultant was trying to dig at me to find out what was the big trauma in my life. And the only thing I can put it down to was that I wasn't really happy in London. Um, I wasn't, I was living at a time in London when Irish people weren't very accepted. Um, and um, my accent was a problem over there, the way I spoke, the way I said things, the way I phrased things. So I became my extrovert. My migraines in, in my 20s were absolutely crippling. Um, and I remember going to a doctor, and this is the first time I went to a doctor and said, look, I've got chronic migraines and they're killing me. And his response to me was, you're just one of those people, Yvonne, who's always going to have a headache. You just need to carry urophin in your back pocket. And I came away thinking, oh, my goodness, like if that's as good as it gets, then I'm in trouble. Um, but um, when I was 28, I, I got married when I was 28. And I remember thinking my migraines had reached an all time high. And I thought, Jesus, I really need to go and get this looked at. And I found um, a neurologist who decided that he wanted to do an MRI on me. And he was checking for tumors and MS and all the rest. Um, and thankfully he didn't find anything, but what he did suggest was to put me on muscle relaxant tablets because he felt that the muscles around my neck and shoulders were so taut that I was probably causing a lot of tension headaches. Um, so I went on the muscle relaxants and they definitely were fantastic, but way too strong for me um, spaced out for way too long. So you could only be on them for a short period of time. Um, and so they worked while I was on them. It took a week or two to get used to them. And I was no sooner on them than I was back off them and back down the spiral of migraines again. Um, and then the year after we got married, we moved to Hong Kong. And this is definitely um, where my health went into decline. Um, and I was getting injected from my migraines at least every week or a every second week and my gut problems were just ridiculous but I think that also had to do with um the just the change of food the type of food I was eating and the oils that it was cooked in and that sort of stuff but um uh, so eating became an absolute disaster over there. It was just one like severe IBS attack after another. The number of times that I would be out for a jog and I would literally be doubled up on the side of the road and looking for the nearest place to go to the toilet. And I remember stopping off at a, a club. It was a Chinese club. And um, I went in and, and the women didn't speak any English. And I just went toilet, toilet like this. And I didn't have time to explain myself. You got two second warning and I ran. And of course they got panicked because I was a female and they couldn't speak my language and I was holding my stomach. And of course they must've thought I was pregnant or whatever. And they rang for an ambulance and the ambulance came and I kept saying to the ambulance driver, seriously, I'm okay, it's IBS, I am fine. And they still had to follow through and take me to the hospital. And they gave me some Imodium up in the hospital and settled it all and then I went home. But that happened quite a few times in, in Hong Kong. Um, but I also, we started trying for a baby when, when I lived in Hong Kong. And um, yeah, that didn't work out too well either. Um, and so hindsight's a great thing, infertility um, and EDS tend to be linked. 
um, but I didn't know any of that. Um, and I ended up at 35 doing my first round of IVF. And when I should have been producing a nice little number between 10 and 12 eggs, I actually produced 32. So I had mild ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Um, and that word hyper, <laughs> it tends to follow me around like a bad penny. Um, it's ridiculous. Like uh, hyperhidrosis, I'm pretty hyper person and the hyperstimulation. So um, all the embryos that they collected um, were all healthy and they were all frozen because you can't have a, a fresh um, replacement when you've got um, hyperstimulation and um, they were replaced two by two and no pregnancy out of any of that um, yeah. but we were leaving Hong Kong to move to the UK and um, we actually left Hong Kong the year of the tsunami we were in Thailand the year of the tsunami and we missed it by one day thank goodness um, but to do IVF in the UK, we had to, in Hong Kong, money talked. So I could have anything done without having any sort of um, investigations done, but you can't have that done in the UK. So for in the UK, for me to have IVF done and the clock was against me, it was ticking the whole time. So I thought, whilst we're in Hong Kong, I'll get a laparoscopy done. Um, and the laparoscopy, um, turned out that I had a lot of large cysts on my ovaries um, and a lot of lesions. And he felt that the lesions had come from the IVF and the hyperstimulation. Um, he didn't mention anything about endo at that time or whatever, but I think there was my link. It was, it, it, it was obvious. Um, so we moved back to Edinburgh and well moved back. I'd never lived there before, but my husband is Scottish. So we moved to Edinburgh. And I had the dosage and I had exactly what I needed to tell them half the dosage because this is what happened to me last time. So they half the dosage and I hyperstimulated again and I produced 29 eggs. Um, so again, I had mild ovarian um, hyperstimulation and um, the embryos were all replaced two by two. Um, but here's the thing I wanted to share with you. Every time I went for a transfer, um, because my um, cervix was turned the wrong way, it wasn't in the right position, the catheter that they would use, they would have to do a lot of poking and prodding to find the right catheter. And even if they got the right catheter this time, when I came in next time and they used the same one that worked last time, it didn't work this time. And so there was endless transfers and none of them worked. And I would always walk away with a five day migraine because it was just, it was so painful, it was ridiculous. And so I was down to my last 11 embryos and I just said to my husband, I have had enough. I am so over this. If having a baby is not for us, then we move on and we just have great holidays and whatever. So I have 11 left and instead of doing two by two, I'm going to make the rash decision to take six on this go and leave five for my next go. Just have two more rounds of it. And this time I asked, could I be put to sleep? And lo yeah. and behold, I got pregnant. Oh, that's incredible. 
So hindsight is a great thing. And I think you have to own your body and you have to be more in control of things than the medical team around you because you know you and you know you know the trauma that it's putting you through. Um, so, um, so at the beginning of the pregnancy, um, to say I was a little bit nervous and stressed out is probably an understatement. I had gone through a lot to get to this point and um, I took bronchitis and I was coughing so hard that I pulled muscles in my stomach and muscles in my back. And I remember going to the doctor and going, is the baby safe? Like, am I gonna lose the baby? And he laughed, <laughs> which I didn't find very funny, but he said, that baby's a lot stronger than you think it is. Um, and I thought, well, you have no idea <laughs> the ordeal I've gone through to get here. Um, and so I took it from all the coughing, the migraine kicked in and it lasted for the first eight weeks of the pregnancy. I couldn't shift this migraine and I couldn't take anything for it because I was afraid of damaging the baby. And so I just suffered this migraine ad and it got to the eight week stage. And I just thought, I just can't do this anymore. I cannot do it anymore. So I rang um, this health center and what I was looking for was a head, neck and back massage to try and relax the muscles because I knew I was uptight. And the woman I was looking for wasn't there. So this other woman felt my pain and said, come in, I'll look after you. And I came in and I had the sunglasses on. It wasn't even sunny outside. And I was just in dire straits. And she took one look at me and she said, okay, she said, I want you to just sit here. And um, she said, we're gonna just follow what I do. She said, we're gonna do some tapping. Mm -hmm. And had I been in my full right state of mind, I would have got up and walked out because it just wasn't my cup of tea, what we were doing. But I was so spent. I had nowhere else to go. And I just went with it. And she got me to do this tapping on my forehead. And she said to me, find, she said, where, where is the pain? And I showed her it was like, just here, it's always here. And she said, where's the nearest exit? And I thought, well, my ear, obviously, right? That's the nearest. So she said, focus on the ear. And I kept tapping. She had me tapping, tapping, tapping the whole time. And the pain traveled and it didn't go to my ear. It went down my neck. And she said, okay, she said, great. So she obviously knew she had a bit of control over it. So she managed to get rid of the migraine. Um, and I never got the migraine back for the whole of the pregnancy. But wow. the reason I tell you that story is because we carry so much stress on us, mm -hmm. right? And that finding a way to release your stress is so important, especially when our central nervous systems are shot, yeah. you know? Um, and so tapping into some mindfulness or yoga or meditation, whatever it is that works for you, just do it. If you're in a stressful situation, remove yourself from it and just take time for you. Self-care is so, so important. So um, during the pregnancy, um, my IBS kicked in big style. I, I always said um, that the IBS was like really battling with the pregnancy, the growing the belly. So it was like all this spasming going on. So 
everything I was eating um, and I was eating healthy um, was just not working for me. Um, and the IBS was horrendous during the pregnancy, but also acid reflux was really bad. Now, what I've learned in the last four weeks is that people who have um, Ehlers-Danlos suffer really, really badly, more than the average person with acid reflux during pregnancy. Again, had I known this, <laughs> I could have been able to point them in the right direction and all the rest. So my first daughter was three weeks overdue and she ended up being induced. And after two days of induction, I was still no further on than two centimeters dilated. So there was no way this child was coming out. Um, they forced my waters, um, which is not a pleasant experience. And then I ended up with an emergency C-section. Um, and this is why I say like knowing what I know now, I would never have gone three weeks over. I would never have allowed that to happen. Um, everything was just so loose and so flaccid that, you know, nothing, nothing was working properly. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that was a pretty traumatizing experience, her birth. So I didn't ever want to experience that again. So after a year of breastfeeding, um, I was then allowed to, um, my per I didn't have my periods during the time I was breastfeeding. Some people do, some don't. I didn't. So I couldn't have a further transfer um, until I had three months of normal periods. So when I stopped breastfeeding my daughter at a year, I then had three normal pregnancies and I went back and I said, please put me out. I want my embryos back. There's my last five, take the best two. And away we go. And I got pregnant with my second. I think I would have been more upset if the second one hadn't worked because I worked out the formula for myself. Um, so it worked. And um, when we got near to my due date, my gynecologist was doing sweeps on me just because she knew my history and she was just trying to get things moving. But there was nothing like I mean, nothing happening. And um, so on my due date, they booked me in for a cesarean section. And I was so anti having another cesarean um, and both my births. I had wanted a home water birth. So you can imagine how much I really didn't want a section yeah, and the fine. pool. From for my first daughter, the pool was actually in the house with the water in it, waiting on me for the three weeks. Um, oh. So um, I was in tears when she said, look, you're going down the same route as your first daughter. And she knew I wasn't keen on the idea of another section. She said, look, she said, the choice is yours, Yvonne. She said, but all the signs are telling us that you are going to go down the same route and I don't recommend another emergency section. So, you know, if we book you in, it will be a planned cesarean section. It won't be as rushed. It will be a completely different experience. And yes, it was. Um, so I ended up um, having a, a planned C-section on my due date. Um, but my pelvis, a couple of days before, my pelvis had become loose and very unstable and um, so by the time I had given birth to my youngest Sorsha um, I was I ended up going having to see a physio every second day and wearing a girdle to just keep me in place and support me um, and I suppose at that stage then that's when the fibro started kicking in 
um, and noticing pushing a buggy around. Oh my God, that was a killer for me or lifting the kids up. Um, mm. And like both girls were out of their beds and into big girl beds by 18 months. There was no buggies in the house after two, two years of age because I just couldn't do the pushing. I don't have any arm strength. Anything that involves my arms um, just creates havoc with my body. Actually, until I had my second daughter that I noticed that there was huge differences between the two girls. Um, and my eldest would either, so my eldest had gut issues. She had explosive nappies from day one. Mm. Um, so, and I didn't pass any heat of that because I just thought that was a breastfed baby, right? Um, but my second daughter wasn't like that. She would have runny nappies, but not explosive in the way Kira was. Um, and the other thing that I hadn't noticed until my second daughter got a little bit older was that my eldest was waking up exhausted and cranky from the get-go and if she wasn't exhausted and cranky from the get-go by 10 o'clock in the morning she was an emotional wreck she was falling tripping over herself banging into things she had no coordination when she'd go to pick up her glass of milk she'd knock it all over the place and um i remember thinking there's there's something amiss here um, and I went to the doctor and the doctor, like I had talked about the gut thing. So they referred me to um, a gastro. They referred me to a pediatrician. They kept pointing me in different directions. And what people were doing were they were taking one symptom and not linking everything that I was telling them. And that was that's what slowed our progress down. So five years of knocking on people's doors. And eventually I found a physio. Um, who put her through a series of tests and um, she turned around at the end of the hour and she said, Yvonne, you need to take her to a rheumatologist. And I'm like, oh, oh my God, this woman's barking mad, right? But a rheumatologist, my child doesn't have arthritis. And like in my head, that was the only thing I could think of. And she said, no, you really do. So I made an appointment with the guy she told me to go to see. And we walked in and he took one look at her and he went, ha ha. I know why she's here like this. He said, but I'd like you to tell me why she's here. And I'm like, no, okay, right? So here are the five things I've noticed about her. And he said, now let me show you what's wrong with her. And he put her sitting up on the bed and he turned her into a, a little contortionist. And I was like, oh my God, of all the things, I had not noticed that. I hadn't noticed it. But what I had noticed was she was a dead weight when she would hug you. She was a dead weight on you, right? She couldn't, she had no control of her, her muscles in her body. And the way he explained it to me, so he diagnosed her with having um, hypermobility, Ehlers-Danlos. But he said, with Kira, he said, it becomes a syndrome. He said, when it affects the quality of your life. And Kira was chronically fatigued. And so it was affecting the quality of her life because there's many dancers and gymnasts out there who are hypermobile. They have to be hypermobile, otherwise they wouldn't be as good as they are, right? But it becomes a syndrome when it affects the quality of your life. So he explained it in this way to me. He said, you've got two groups of muscles. He said, you've got your A group, which is your core muscles and they're the ones that you use constantly and then you've got your b group which are the ones that you switch on and off like for running or jumping kira had no core muscles and when kira ran she ran facing forward like she was at 
tipping stage at all times because she had no strength to keep her upright. And, um, and then when she would go to bed at night, you, to look at her, you would think she was sleeping well. I was in and out checking on her the whole time um, because I thought there's something going on. Maybe she's waking up and having little parties in the middle of the night or something. Like she's waking up so fatigued in the morning. Um, but um, what happens is your B group muscles go into spasm. So they're because they're overused throughout the day. And so by them being overused throughout the day it and the spasming it stops her going into the deep sleep needed to be restful so therefore it's a vicious cycle she wakes back up the next day and she hasn't been rested and she's continuing her day so Kira is now 13 and we manage her chronic fatigue um, she's pretty accident prone there's always something but we manage her on a day-to-day basis but it was through Kira and learning how to help Kira to manage herself and to connect the dots that I realized there was a lot of similarities um, in her symptoms and mine and also mm -hmm. my mother's, but all to varying degrees. And so I would say that our diet has had the biggest impact on our yeah. health. So in 2014, um, my youngest from six months when she went on solids she was so it's so constipated she was compacted and um it just it was continuous the child was continuously constipated there was no let up from it at all and i couldn't figure it out like i was giving her healthy food she was eating fruit and veg and so sorcia was the first one who went and had a breath test done and I never put Sorsha in the same category as Kira myself. Like Kira, my symptoms were very similar, but Sorsha was different. And um, she came back with a fructose and a lactose malabsorption. And I thought, okay, right. And then Kira, I decided then to have Kira tested. And my doctor said to me, whatever Kira comes back with, you can be guaranteed that's what you have. So Kira got tested and Kira came back. So when I say tested, I mean breath tested. Mm -hmm. So Kira also came back with a fructose and lactose malabsorption. Oh my God. So then I got tested and I also came back with a fructose and lactose malabsorption. So now when you think back and you think about what do you start feeding your babies when you put them on solids? you start feeding them fruit, sweet fruit to begin with, right? So from the day dot, I was killing my daughter with kindness, right? Because I was uneducated as to how to feed her. Um, and I just want to cover something here um, that the gut issues are like finding out what your gut issues are. And remember I said, it's not always easy to detect, detect what your gut, gut issues are because of that tipping bucket, right? Um, but to be able to find out what your gut issues are is the best thing you can do for your body because we were all malnourished. We were yeah. malnourished for years. And I remember I would sit down and eat a meal and two seconds later, I would start the shakes and I would be starving. And the reason I was hungry again was because everything I'd just eaten hadn't nourished me, not one bit. What I've noticed from that is that when we eat right, um, our energy levels are, are 
great. Like her fatigue isn't as bad when she's eating right. And when her fatigue is really bad, her anxiety is through the roof. It has a knock-on effect. Um, so um, also, like for me as an adult, and um, the other things that I noted was the inflammation in my stomach, but also the inflammation in my joints had toned down from just not having dairy or gluten in my diet. Um, so that made a huge difference to me. And my IBS for the first time in my whole life was under control. So about six years ago, I got um, fitted for the Mirena, um, which is a coil, um, because I was experiencing really severe ovary pain. Um, and like I would, before I ovulated every month for 48 hours, the pain was cruel. I wouldn't be able to sit, stand, like I would ease myself into the chair. It was like an old woman, like coughing or laughing was just not happening during those four, 48 hours. So she felt, my doctor felt that by filling me with the moraine would cover me for this and hopefully help my headaches and also cover me for going into menopause at a later stage. Um, I think, yes, it probably it got rid of the ovary pain. But now, um, even though I'm in menopause now, at that stage, every month, I get tenderness in the whole upper part of my body. Uh, it lasts 48 hours and it's gone. I'd rather that than the ovary pain any day. But at the same time, I um, was asked to keep a headache diary because my headaches were out of control again. And it's interesting because up until that point, I would have said, oh, they're bad, but I didn't really know how bad they were. And so I kept a diary over a three month period and what we noticed was there was only three days that I was headache free in the three months. They were that bad. Um, so I was to say I was chewing Nurofen and Panadol um, was an understatement. Um, and she put me on a daily preventative, a blocker. Um, but I didn't feel the blocker was in any ways helping the headaches. The headaches were still there and it was making me quite nauseous. So I asked to come off the blocker um, and she put me on um, a preventative for when I get migraines. Mm -hmm. um, and that works, but I can come in and out of a migraine like, 20 times over a five-day period so I'm still knocking back a lot of pills um but I definitely feel that um I'm more in control of the migraines now how I live with fibro migraines um they're absolutely debilitating um doing anything with my arms hoovering washing the floor cooking leaves me exhausted and severe severe muscle tension which then leads to migraines on a day-to-day -day basis, I have no idea what to expect from my conditions when I wake. I sometimes wake in the middle of the night with a migraine from the position of my neck or my yes. shoulders. For the last four days, I have, like, since the weekend, my arm has been really bad. Everything has kicked off. Um, it, it It's affected my mental health because I don't... I can't do what I used to be able to do, even though that was limited. Um, I'm in a sort of like, when is this going to be over? So if I manage to get through the night with no headache, then stepping out on the floor in the morning is my first indicator as to how my body is because of how sore my feet are. Um, and I find sometimes I find that the more upright I am, 
um, sometimes it can settle, like things can just settle down. Um, or else my first port call is just getting into a hot bath to relax the muscles that should have been relaxed during the night, but weren't. Um, and then I go from there to um, pills, whatever my next step is. Um, I like to go for a walk every day, even though some days I don't feel like it, but movement is so important um, because the longer you sit, the worse the, for me, the worse my condition is. Yeah, you become deconditioned, don't you? If you're if you're not trying to get some bit of movement. One hundred percent, and you decondition so quickly, like in the space of four days, because we don't have any muscle tone, right? We mm. like we get out of balance so quickly, so so quickly. The other thing I thought I'd share with you is the tools that I use for mm. me to keep me going every day. Um, so. I talked to you about the healthy diet. That's mm -hmm. that's key. Um, I also take a daily probiotic because I feel that having good gut bacteria in there is so vitally important. Exercise is a must. And if you can't get out for a walk, just get up, move to music, do some exercises in the house, some yoga, some some anything, just mm -hmm. anything. I bought a little trampoline um, so that I could like just jump on the days that, that that's also like go to the toilet before you use the trampoline because that can be a bit of an issue. I would say if I went on a trampoline, my heart rate gets so high, I'm gone. <laughs> Forget about it. I have to do with cumbrium exercises, so. And that's another thing that I noticed that I didn't talk about is um, if I get excited about something or worked up about something, my heart rate goes up and it takes a long time to settle. Um, so they're just things, and of course, my migraine preventative. Um, I think I've gone over on you, Carolyn. Sorry. No, you're that's fine. It. That's, that's everything I had to share with you. It's perfect because it's helping everybody, but it's also educating me as going on. That's why I'm writing everything down because I'm learning. And there's a lot of stuff that you've said there that would, that would actually help me. Like, I've never thought about getting the weight of blanket. I thought on my muscles might be too much, but I'm going to give it a try because well, it's trial and error with everything really, isn't but it? But that's what I thought as well. I thought it might, now, now interestingly, um, my youngest daughter, I, I think that she's got more than what we think she has. Um, so she's had restless leg syndrome since she was four. She's 11 now and I'm, I've taken her to a rheumatologist and the rheumatologist basically referred her to a psychologist. Um, no. I, we've, we've literally, we've had no joy with rheumatologists here in Adelaide. The, the best one was in Perth when we lived in Perth, but we live in Adelaide now and I've not found one decent person. So I am basically managing us to the best of my ability without any education behind what I'm doing. Yeah, and that's that's it. But that's the whole point of like about advocating. People don't understand it because we ourselves have to become not only patients, but we have to become doctors as well. And then when you've, got children, when you've got children then that are showing same type of symptoms, same type of syndrome, you've got to be a carer for them as well as yourself. Like I'm trying to adapt to that because Blake, my Blake is 14 since May and he started the upon standing um getting lightheaded the ringing in his ear the fainting all the same stuff which is funny enough that my dad had since he was 16 but they treated it just as sinuscope and they said back then in those days I mean my father was born in 1946 so 
Um, they didn't know how to treat it. They never connected it to my parts. And then, funnily enough, when I, I brought Lake in for painting, my own uh, GP said, Carolyn, it could be pots considering it's there in your it's there in your history. But I do laugh then because all the tests they done, like checking his heart rate and checking his blood pressure, was done laying down. We don't have a problem laying down this when we're standing up. And I keep trying to say it, but the point of it is we have to learn all this stuff as we yeah. go along. So that's why it's great for somebody like you to be able to share your knowledge that you've learned because somebody's listening. That may help them and get them that step further. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you so, so much for doing that. I mean, by jaw just hit the ground, how you're still standing a woman that goes through that much stuff constantly is just, you really are a warrior, Yvonne. Honest to God, I'm really, really appreciated. Thank you so, Thank so much. So we'll leave you with that this week. And again, thanks a million to Yvonne for taking the time out to being one of, I mean, an epic warrior on this week's show. And I shall see you all again next week. Take care and mind yourself. Well, another great episode. A huge thank you again to Yvonne for sharing her journey with us. And we wish you all the best for the near future. If you would like to follow Yvonne and get some more information on all her different chronic illnesses, you can find her on Instagram at Yvonne underscore Cowan. And you can keep up to date with her then. I'd like to thank you all for listening. And I do hope you will all come back and join us again as us warriors unite.